0: This is a uh, collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky and Theosophy, An Eyewitness View of Occult History, uh, selected by Christopher Bamford. This is Lecture 3, entitled The History of Spiritualism, given in Berlin on May 30, 1904. Today I want to address spiritualism, a subject that claims both enthusiastic proponents and the most violent opponents. Some of these oppose it in the harshest way. Others ridicule it, classing it with the darkest superstitions, or what they call darkest superstition. Still, others simply try to brush it aside with empty, witty, derisive words. In other words, it is not easy to speak about something that, generally speaking, seems almost instantly to arouse the most vehement passions today. Therefore I must ask those of you who are followers of spiritualism not to condemn immediately any statement that I shall be obliged to make if it does not seem to agree entirely with your views. Rather, please remember that advocates of spiritual science share at least one common interest with spiritualists, namely we both wish to investigate the higher spiritual worlds that transcend what we can hear with ears, see with eyes, grasp with hands in daily life. In this we are agreed. At the same time, I must also ask the scientists among you to remember that the Theosophical Movement, in whose name I speak, chose the motto, not merely as a label, as a phrase, but in the most serious sense, no human opinion is superior to the truth, close quote. I would likewise ask you to reflect on the fact that even science has changed in the course of time, and that what is regarded today as scientifically established cannot be so regarded for all time. And so, without taking sides one way or the other, and mindful of the fact that no human opinion is superior to the truth, allow me to speak briefly and sketchily about the evolution of the spiritualist movement. First, I must emphasize that the founder of the Theosophical Movement, Madame Blavatsky, as well as its great organizer, Colonel Alcott, themselves started in the Spiritualist Movement. Madame Blavatsky and Colonel Alcott were both thoroughly acquainted with Spiritualism. They created the Theosophical Movement in 1875 only after they had first energetically sought the truth within the Spiritualist Movement and had not found it. Theosophy does not seek to attack spiritualism. It is concerned with seeking the truth, where it is to be found. I want to call your attention to something else, too, which will surprise some people, but will probably not surprise surprise others who are more accurately informed. Let me put it this way. You will never learn the last word about spiritualism or similar things, from people who are obliged to speak about it as I do. As you know, there is in all science a precept that is justified by the scientific methods themselves. This is the precept that one's scientific findings must be presentable to a larger circle of hearers in a popular way. Anyone wanting to gain a more intimate knowledge of these findings, anyone wishing to know the more intimate truth, must undertake a longer course of study leading through the various methods, with all the details. As a rule, scientific researchers cannot present in popular lectures what they have established in the inner sanctum of their laboratories, the privacy of the observatories. If this is true in the case of physical science, it is even truer in the case of the great spiritual movements of the world. In spiritual research, speaking now of what the researcher acquires through spiritual insight, Whoever has the right to utter the words is in fact under orders to withhold the last one. In spiritual matters the final word is of a kind that scarcely ever permits public utterance. In questions relating to the spirit, therefore, you will never hear the last word from those who call themselves occultists, unless you are in a position and have the will to follow them in the closest, most intimate way. For those, quote, in the know, close quote, however, the way in which a fact is stated will illuminate what is being spoken of, not only between the lines, but perhaps even between the words. After this introduction, let me proceed to the subject itself, which certainly has great cultural and historical significance, even for those inclined to treat it with derision. I shall address it from an angle that will shed light upon it, namely from the point of view of the following questions. What is spiritualism seeking today? Is it seeking something new or something very old? Are the ways in which it is searching entirely modern, or have these very same paths been trod by humanity for hundreds, even thousands of years? Answering these questions is the quickest way to discover the historical cultural significance of spiritualism. Without a doubt, what spiritualists are seeking first is knowledge of those worlds extending beyond our sensory world. Second, they seek the meaning of those worlds for the goal, the destiny of humanity. If we ask ourselves if these problems haven't been humanity's task ever since we have been upon earth and striven for something, then we must answer yes. And since such problems are certainly among the highest of humanity's tasks, it would be absurd if something entirely new arose in the world regarding these questions. And yet, when we survey the spiritualist movement in ancient and modern times, it seems as if we are dealing with something quite new. Spiritualists' strongest opponents appeal to the fact that it has brought something entirely new into the world. Others say that it has never been so necessary to fight this movement as at the present time. Therefore, our way of looking at this subject must have changed. This becomes immediately clear when we understand that humanity has reacted in three different ways to the questions that we designate today as spiritualistic. The first way can be found throughout antiquity a way that was changed only in the Christian era. A second way was prevalent throughout the Middle Ages and lasted into the 17th century. Only in the 17th century, in fact, does what we are today justified in calling spiritualism really begin to take on a definite form. In ancient times, the questions spiritualists wish to answer today THE PROVINCE OF THE SO-CALLED MYSTERIES. Let me now, in a few sentences, try to make clear what the word mysteries implies. In ancient times, wisdom was not proclaimed publicly, as it is today. There was a completely different attitude to wisdom and truth. Throughout antiquity, people believed that to acquire knowledge of supersensible truths, one had first to develop supersensible organs. Everyone understood that spiritual forces lie sleeping in all human beings. They knew that such spiritual forces are not developed in the average person, but can be awakened and unfolded by prolonged exercises. Adherents of the mysteries, in fact, described these stages of development as very difficult. It was generally felt that a person who had developed such forces and was able to research the truth in this way was related to the ordinary person as a seeing person is related to one born blind. This is the kind of, in quotes, vision those within the holy mysteries aimed at. Those within the mysteries sought to achieve spiritually something similar to what is achieved by the physician who operates upon a person born blind so that he or she may see. A person who is born blind and then operated upon begins to see the colors of light and the forms of things. Just so, ancient peoples understood that for a person whose inner senses are awakened, a new world appears, one that ordinary seeing cannot perceive. Those consecrated in the mysteries sought to create from ordinary human beings a human being who had evolved to a higher stage of evolution. Such a person they called an initiate. Only the initiate was thought to be in a position to discover anything about supersensible truths by direct vision, by spiritual intuition. Ordinary people could be given truths only by means of pictures. The myths of antiquity, the legends about the gods, and the origin of the world, which seem to us today in a certain way as childlike, are nothing but disguises of supersensible truths. Initiates communicated to ordinary folk through images of what they had been able to see of the temple mysteries. All the mythologies, Greek, Roman, Germanic, and all the myths of indigenous peoples are only pictorial symbolic representations of supersensible truths. To be sure, you will perceive this fully only if, freeing yourselves from the preconceptions of anthropology and ethnology, you devote your attention to the spirit of these myths. Then you will see that a myth like the Hercules myth represents a deep inner truth, and that Jason's recovery of the Golden Fleece represents profound knowledge that may be perceived in its truth. With our own era, another way appeared. I can only roughly indicate the outlines of what I have to say. A certain fund of higher spiritual truths was established and made the special concern of the religious communions, particularly of the Christian And this fund of spiritual truths was now removed from every sort of human inquiry, was placed outside the realm of direct human effort. Those who have studied the history of the Council of Nicaea 325 CE will know what I mean, and also those who understand the words of St. Augustine when he says, I would not believe in the truth of divine revelation if the authority of the Church did not compel me to. The belief that established a certain body of truths took the place of the truths of the ancient mysteries that were preserved in pictures. Now there followed the epoch in which those truths that were meant to give information about the supersensible world were no longer transmitted by pictures, but simply by authority. That is the second way in which the masses of the people and those who had to lead them were related to the highest truths. In ancient times, the mysteries transmitted them to the great masses through perception, that is, images. In the Middle Ages, they were mediated through belief, faith, and maintained by authority. But besides those who had the task of maintaining these teachings, in the great masses, through belief and authority, there were in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries those who wished to develop themselves up to the highest truth through their own direct intuitive vision. There have been such in all ages, but they did not appear publicly. These sought the truth in the same ways in which it has been sought within the mysteries. Thus we find in the Middle Ages Besides those who were priests, also mystics, theosophists, occultists, who spoke in a language that is difficult or almost impossible for present-day materialists and rationalists to understand. We find some who had pushed on to the mysteries upon paths that elude sense perception. And those who, as priests in the mysteries, had the task of spiritual guidance spoke in a language still more difficult to understand. Thus we hear of one who had the ability to send his thoughts across far distances. Another boasted that he could change the whole sea into gold if it were permitted. We hear that another speaks of being able to construct an instrument, a vessel, by means of which he could move through the air. We see, therefore, that from the middle of the Middle Ages on, secret societies arose in Europe that led their members to the development of higher intuitive forces upon the same paths that had been followed by the ancient mysteries. Within such societies, the path to the highest truths was taken according to the method of the mysteries. I will mention only the most important and most significant of these societies, that of the Rosicrucians, founded by Christian Rosenkreutz. This movement can be clearly followed historically into the 18th century. I cannot set forth in detail how it occurred. I can only give an example, the great representative of occult science in the 16th and 17th centuries, Robert Flood. For those of you who have insight into these realms, let me say that he shows in all his writings that he is acquainted with the paths that lead to the truth. He demonstrates indeed that he knows how those forces must be developed that are of an entirely different sort from the forces by which we perceive illuminated objects of any kind. He shows that there are mysterious paths by which to come to the highest truths. He speaks also of the Rosicrucian society in such a way that for any initiate the connection is clear. To show you in what a veiled way these things were discussed in Robert Flood's time, I wish to place before you just three questions, which he says that anyone who has reached the lowest stage of initiation must be able to answer with intelligence. These questions, and also their answers, will appear rather senseless to rationalists and materialists. The first question That one wishing to rise in a worthy way to higher spiritual spheres must answer is this. Where do you dwell? And the answer is, I dwell in the temple of wisdom on the mount of discernment. To understand this single sentence, to have inner experience of it, means already to have opened certain inner senses. The second question was this. Whence does the truth come to thee? And the answer is, it comes to me from the creative spirit. And now comes a sentence that cannot at all be translated into the German. Most high, almighty, universal spirit. Who has spoken through Solomon? And who will instruct me in alchemy, magic and in the Kabbalah? That is the second question. The third question is, what would you build? And the answer is, I will build a temple like the original tabernacle, like Solomon's temple, like the body of Christ, and like something else that I cannot give utterance to. I need not, nor can I, enter further into these questions. You see that for all who were not initiates in such societies, what are called supersensible truths were veiled in a secret, mysterious darkness and those who were not initiates had first to make themselves worthy and had to have reached a high point morally and intellectually. Anyone who did not give uh, proofs of this, whose inner being did not have the force to experience inwardly, was deemed unworthy and was not admitted to initiation. It was considered dangerous to know these truths. It was known that knowledge is connected with power with development of power of which the average person has no idea whatsoever. Only one who has reached that moral and intellectual height is capable of possessing these truths and this power without danger to humanity. It was said further that without having attained this height, one who was in possession of these truths and this power would seem like a child sent with matches into a powder magazine. Throughout these times, disclosures concerning phenomena such as were related everywhere in the folk traditions, and have been popularly talked about for thousands of years, phenomena such as spiritualism offers again today, were considered possible only for one who possessed the highest supersensible truths. What spiritualism recognizes today is nothing new, but something very old. In ancient times it was simply said of such phenomena that human beings have the capacity to produce quite unusual effects. For instance, certain people cause the sound of knocking to be heard in their vicinity. Around other people, objects are made to move contrary to the laws of gravity, often without being touched. At other times objects are caused to fly through the air without the use of physical force and so on. Since ancient times it has been known too. That there are people who can be put into certain states, today called trance, in which they speak of things of which they could never speak in waking consciousness. And it has been known that in such a state they can also give information about other regions not connected with our sense world. It was known that there are people who can communicate what they see in such supersensible worlds by signs or symbols. It was known, too, that there are people able to see distant events, people who see events miles away, and are able to give information about them, people who, through their gift of prophecy, are able to foresee and foretell future events. All that is very ancient tradition. Those who believe they are able to accept it as truth consider it self-evident. Such phenomena were regarded as true throughout the Middle Ages. They were, to be sure, looked upon by the Church of the Middle Ages as being evoked by means of evil arts. But that does not concern us here. In any case, during the 17th and 18th centuries, the path to the supersensible world was not sought by way of these phenomena. Up to those times, no one maintained that by a dancing table or by a ghost appearing in some way, whether seen with eyes or in trance... One can disclose anything whatever about a supersensible world. If someone had said that from here they saw a fire in Hanover, they were believed. But no one thought that from such a statement anyone could gain serious information about the supersensible world. Those who wished to make supersensible observations sought these through the development of inner forces in secret societies. Among people with insight, it was considered self evident that the supersensible cannot be sought in the other way. Then came another moment in the evolution of the Western world, a time in which people began to seek all truth in the natural scientific way. The Copernican world conception appeared, and investigations in physiology. Then came the technical arts the discovery of the circulation of the blood, the discovery of the egg cell, and so on. Humanity gained insight into nature by way of the senses. Any person who approached the Middle Ages without prejudices, wishing to discover the medieval world conception in its true aspect, will soon be convinced that the thought of that time did not represent earth, heaven, and hell as localities in space but as something spiritual. It did not occur to anyone who had insight in the Middle Ages to advocate the worldview that today is attributed to the scholars of that time. It is not in this sense that the Copernican theory is something new. It is new in a quite different sense, in the sense that since the 16th century, the criterion for truth became sense-perception. What can be seen can be perceived with the senses. The world picture held by people of the Middle Ages was not false in the sense in which it is often represented to be today, but it was a world picture that was not viewed with physical eyes. The physical aspect perceptible to the senses was a symbol for something spiritual. Dante, too, did not represent his heaven and his hell in the earthly sense. They were to be spiritually conceived. Then followed a complete change in the point of view. The real psychologist of human evolution discovers that. The physical, sensible was exalted and then little by little materialism conquered the world. Humanity unconsciously grew habituated to it. Only the investigating psychologist hurrying behind evolution is able to make a picture of it. Human beings who are in it become used to such changes. The sense world becomes the real. Quite unconsciously it became a principle of human nature to admit only what is seen in some way, only what one can be convinced of through the evidence of the senses. People had no regard for those circles that spoke of initiation and led to supersensible truths upon secret paths everything had to be demonstrated to the senses how was it now with the supersensible world how could the supersensible be found in a world in which the truth was to be sought only in sense effects there were always isolated phenomena that were not explicable in the light of previously known nature forces rare so-called abnormal phenomena. These were phenomena that the physicist, the natural scientist, could not explain, and they were simply denied by anyone unwilling to admit the validity of what could not be physically explained. At the same time, people took refuge in those phenomena, which were now searched for. In the face of the urge to cling only to outer-sense evidence, the impetus toward the supersensible took refuge in such phenomena. People wanted to know about what was inexplicable for the scientific critic. They wanted to know the facts. When people began to seek evidences from another world in this way, that was the moment of the birth of modern spiritualism. We can even mention the hour of birth and the place in which it occurred. In seventeen sixteen a book by a member of the Royal Society, a description of the Shetland Islands appeared. It gathered together everything that was to be learned about quote, second sight, close quote. that is to say, about what cannot be perceived with the ordinary eyes, but can be learned only by supersensible research. Here you have the forerunner of all that was done later from the so-called scientific side in the investigation of spiritualistic phenomena. And now we have arrived at the entrance to the whole modern spiritualist movement. The personality from whom the whole spiritualistic movement originated, namely Swedenborg, is one of the most remarkable in the world. He influenced the whole of the 18th century. Even Kant took him into account. The person who could call the modern spiritualistic movement into existence had to be as Swedenborg was. Born in 1688, dying in 1772, he was for the first half of his life a natural scientist who stood at the peak of the natural science of his time. He comprehended it fully. No one can attack Swedenborg as unlearned. We know that he was not only an unquestionable expert of his time, but that he also anticipated many truths of natural science that the universities discovered only later. He was, therefore, in the first half of his life not only accomplished from the natural scientific point of view, which would make all research according to sense appearance and mathematical calculation, but he was even far in advance of his time in this regard, then he turned his attention completely to so-called visionary fancies. Whether you call him a seer or a visionary, what Swedenborg experienced in that realm was a quite definite group of phenomena, and even one who was only partially initiated in this field knows that Swedenborg was able to experience only this group of phenomena. A few examples must suffice. Swedenborg saw a conflagration, from a place sixty miles distant from Stockholm. He immediately made this known to the people with him, and some time afterward it was learned that the fire had occurred just as Swedenborg had related it. Another example. A personality of high standing made a request concerning a secret that a brother had not entirely communicated before his death because he died before finishing his statement. This personality turned to Swedenborg, requesting him to find his brother and ask what he had wished to say. Swedenborg performed the commission in such a way that the person in question could have no doubt that he had penetrated the secret. Still a third example shows how Swedenborg moved in the supersensible world. A scholar and friend visited him, but was told by the servant that he must wait a little while. The scholar sat down and heard a conversation in the adjoining room, but he always heard only Swedenborg speaking and no answer. The matter became stranger still when he heard the discourse continue in a wonderfully classical Latin, and especially when he heard Swedenborg talking in a familiar way about affairs of Caesar Augustus. Then Swedenborg went to the door, bowed, and spoke to someone of whom the friend saw nothing. He then returned and said to his friend, Pardon me that I have caused you to wait. I had exalted company. Virgil was with me. People may think as they wish about such things. One thing is certain. Swedenborg believed in them. He took them for reality. I said that only a personality like Swedenborg could happen upon this kind of research. Precisely the fact that he was well grounded in the natural science of his time led him to his view of supersensible nature. He was a man who, in the time of the dawning of natural science, had become accustomed to admitting only the sensible, the visible. Thus, as a man who perceived the spiritual in the world, Swedenborg was dependent upon the sensible, the visible. Since he insisted upon recognizing as correct, only what he could calculate and perceive with the senses, he brought the supersensible into the form it had to have for him. The supersensible world was drawn down into a lower sphere under the influence of the habits of thought of natural science. I shall not speak of the significance and of the kernel of truth in what Swedenborg saw, I shall speak of the fact that as soon as one enters this region that serves as the basis of the Swedenborgian views, one sees what one is inclined to see. One sees what one has cultivated in oneself. A simple example may serve as proof of this. When in the second half of the 19th century the spiritualistic wave began to spread, experiments were made, for example in Bavaria. It was shown there that in experiments instituted in various places and attended by well-educated persons, very different spiritual manifestations could occur. At one such meeting it was asked whether the human soul is received by inheritance from the parents, so that the soul too is inherited, or whether it is created anew in the case of each human being in this society the answer was given "souls are created anew" close quote. almost at the same time in another society the same question was put and the answer was quote, quote, "the soul is not created but is transmitted from parents to children" close quote. it was found that in one society there were supporters of the so-called creation theory and in the other society some scholars were present who were supporters of the other theory According to their leaning, that is, according to the tendency of the thoughts that existed in those present, the answers were given. Whatever the facts may be, whatever may be the basis of these facts, it has been shown that what one gets as revelation corresponds to one's attitude toward these things. Whether it appears merely as intellectual manifestation or as vision is the same. What one sees depends upon one's own tendencies. So it came about that this seeking for material supersensible proofs became straightway a child of the natural science of the materialistic age. And as matter of fact, the principle became established that the supersensible world is to be sought just as one seeks the sense world. Just as anyone in the laboratory is convinced of the reality of magnetic forces or of light forces, so people wish to be convinced of the reality of the supersensible world by what takes place before their eyes. People had forgotten how to see the spiritual in a purely spiritual way. They had forgotten how to develop the belief in supersensible forces and how to learn to recognize what is neither material nor analogous to the material, but can be comprehended only by spiritual intuition. They had formed the habit of letting everything come to them through the senses, so they wished to let these things also be transmitted to them in a material way. Research was conducted along these lines. So we see how the Swedenborgian tendency was continued. What is shown to us offers nothing new. Spiritualism offers nothing new. We shall make a survey of this later and then understand better. All the phenomena that spiritualism knows were explained in this way. Ettinger of southern Germany Presented the theory that there is a supersensible substance that can be seen as physical phenomena, only he says supersensible matter does not have the coarse qualities of physical matter, does not have the impenetrable resistance and the coarse composition. Here we have the stuff of what of which materializations are made. Then we have again one Johann Heinrich Jung called Stilling who published a detailed report about spirits and spirit phenomena, in which he described all these things. In this report he tried to handle everything so as to do justice, as a Christian, to the phenomena. Because he was inclined to Christian belief, the whole world seemed to him to manifest nothing but truths of the Christian teaching. And because at the same time natural science asserted its rights, we see in his presentation a combination of the purely Christian point of view with the point of view of natural science. According to the method that we call occult, the phenomena are explained as the projection of a spiritual world into our world. You see, all these phenomena, described in the works of those who have written about spiritualism, demonology, magic, and so on, in which you can find much that goes even farther than spiritualism, as in the case of Enemoser, for example. We even see carefully described how one can put oneself into a condition to perceive the thoughts of others who are in distant rooms. You will find such instructions in Enemoser and in other works. Enemoser is spelled aside, E-N-N-E-M-O-S-E-R, Enemoser, end of aside. As early as the 19th century, you find the teaching of reincarnation or re-embodiment in the works of a certain Meyer, who wrote a book from the standpoint of spiritualism about Hades as a manifestation of spiritualistic manipulations. You will find there a theory to which spiritual science has brought us again, which shows us that ancient fairy tales are the expression of higher truths prepared for the common people. Meyer came to that view through physical manifestations. In the work of Justinus Kerner, significant because of the moral weight of the author, we find all the phenomena that spiritualism knows. We find there, for example, that the seeress of Prevorst pushed away spoons and so forth lying near her. We are also told how this seeress was in communication with beings of other worlds. Justinus Kerner describes all the communications she gave him. She herself told him that she saw beings from other worlds who passed through her, to be sure, but she could perceive them nevertheless, and that she could even see such beings entering the room with other people. Of such things many may say that Kerner lived in fantasies and that he allowed himself to be much imposed upon by his seeress. I should like to say just one thing in this connection. You all know David Friedrich Strauss, who was a friend of Kerner's. He knew how it was with the seerists of Privorst. You know, too, that his accomplishments took a direction that ran counter to the spiritualistic current. He says that the facts that the seerists of Privorst communicated are true as facts. There can be no discussion about that among those who know something about it. He considered the facts to be beyond all doubt. Although at that time there were a comparatively large number of people who still had more or less interest in such things, this interest nevertheless began to wane. That resulted from the influence of the position taken by science. It was not inclined to look upon such phenomena as true evidence in the 1840s, when the law of conservation of energy was discovered, and with it the foundation of our physics was laid when the cell theory was advanced, when Darwinism was in preparation. What appeared during that time could not be favorable to pneumatologists. They were therefore severely repulsed, and people forgot all that they had had to say. Then came an event that indicated victory for spiritualism. The event took place not in Europe, but in the country where, at that time, Materialism celebrated its greatest triumphs, where it had become customary in spiritual matters to regard as true only what hands can grasp. It happened in America, in the country where the materialistic habits of thought that I have indicated had been developed intellectually. It had its origin in those phenomena which, in the crudest sense, belong to those that must be called abnormal, to be sure, but which are physical nevertheless. The well-known knocking sounds, the connected phenomenon of table-turning, the hearing of voices sounding through the air, accompanied by intelligent manifestations for which there was no physical cause, these things in America, the country where great stress is laid upon outer appearance, indicated the supersensible in an obvious way. This view won an overwhelming acknowledgement that there is a supersensible world, and that beings not belonging to our world are able to manifest themselves, to reveal themselves in our sense world. It took the world by storm. Andrew Jackson Davis, a man who dealt with these phenomena, was called upon to explain them. He was a seer of the Swedenborg type, only he had not Swedenborg's depth. He had grown up as a farm boy, an unlettered American, whereas Swedenborg was an educated Swede. In 1848 Davis wrote a book entitled The Philosophy of Spiritual Intercourse. His work resulted from the most modern needs that had arisen in the modern struggle for, ex- for existence, in which the only material to be admitted was what individuals wished to enlist for their personal egotism to snatch for themselves as much as possible and so be as happy as possible. In this world, with habits of thought fixed only on the material, one could no longer have any inclination to a belief that leads away from the sense world. One wanted to see with the eyes and to have a belief that satisfied the needs and desires of modern humanity. Most important of all, Davis says quite clearly that modern humanity cannot believe that a certain number of human beings will be among the blessed and others will be damned. That was what moderns could not bear. Here an idea of evolution had to come in. Then Davis had a truth communicated to him that presents an accurate likeness of the sense world. Let me characterize it by an example. When Davis's first wife died, he thought to marry a second time. He had scruples against it, but a supersensible communication made him change his mind. In this communication, none other than his first wife told him that she herself had married again in Summerland. Therefore he felt justified in entering a second marriage here. In the first part of his book, Davis tells us that as a farm boy he was brought up in the Christian faith. But he soon came to perceive that the Christian belief could offer no conviction. He understood that modern humanity must see into the what and the why and know whither the way leads. Davis says, I was sent out to the field by my parents and there met a snake. I attacked it with a pitchfork, but the prong broke off. I took the prong and prayed. I was convinced that prayer would help. But how can I believe in a God who lets me have such an experience? Quote. And thereupon he became an unbeliever. Through spiritualistic seances he took part in, he became qualified for the trance, and became one of the most prolific spiritualist writers. He emphasizes in his writings that in the other world things appear about the same as in the sense world. It would be incredible that a good father should not concern himself with his, about his children, since the father makes a long journey for this very purpose, and so on. You see that the earthly world is carried over to the other world. For that reason, this manner of thought spread like wildfire through the whole world. In a short time, the followers of spiritualism were counted by millions. As early as 1850... Thousands of mediums could be found in Boston, and in a short time it was possible to raise the sum of $300,000 to found a spiritualist temple. That such a fact has great significance for the history of civilization you will not deny. With a modern mode of thought, however, this movement had a prospect of success only when science took possession of it, that is, when science put faith in it. If I were to give a lecture on theosophy, I could speak circumstantially about the fact that other entirely different powers control the setting of the stage for spiritualistic phenomena. Behind the scenes, profound occult powers are at work. But that cannot be my task today. At another time I will speak about those who actually set the stage for these phenomena, but this much is certain. If this occult power behind the scenes wished to assume that these phenomena profoundly convinced materialistically thinking humanity of the existence of a supersensible world, if this was to be believed for all time, then the scientific circles had to be won over. And these scientific circles were not so difficult to win over, precisely among the most intelligent, Among those who had the ability to think profoundly and logically, there were many who turned to the spiritualist movement. In America there were Lincoln and Edison, in England Gladstone, the natural scientist Wallace, the mathematician Morgan. Also in Germany there were a great number of outstanding scholars who were indisputable in their fields and who allowed themselves to be convinced of spiritualistic phenomena by mediums, for instance. Weber, and Gustav Theodor Fechner, the founder of psychophysics. To this group belongs also Friedrich Zollner, of whom only those who understand nothing about the subject can say that he had become insane when he made the famous experiments with Slade. Then there is another personality who is still underestimated. That is Baron Hellenbach, who died in 1887, and whose books will be a true source for studying the direction of this movement in the second half of the 19th century, especially among the more enlightened. A European impetus was given to the American movement coming from a man who stood in the very midst of European culture, a pupil of Pestalozzi, and it was given at a time that is significant, besides, because of other discoveries. This person is Alan Kardec, who wrote his theory... Of the world of spirits in 1858, the same year in which many other works appeared that were epoch making for Western civilization. Only a few of the works need be mentioned to indicate the great significance of the spiritual life of that time. One is Darwin's Origin of Species, another is a fundamental work in the psychophysical field by Fechner, a third is a work by Bunsen that acquaints us with spectral analysis and makes it possible for the first time to discover something of the material constitution of the stars. A fourth was the work of Karl Marx, Capital. The fifth was a work by Kardec, a spiritualistic book, but of a very different kind from the American works. Kardec presented the idea of reincarnation, of the re-embodiment of the human soul. This French spiritualist, had, in a short time, just as great a following as the American. It spread through France, Spain, and also especially through Austria. This form of spiritualism was in harmony with the ancient wisdom teachings of theosophy. It was of such a nature that even men like Hellenbach could enter into it. And so Hellenbach, eminent in the field of social politics, who in the 1860s and 1870s, played a leading role in important political affairs of Austria that shows at every step what a clear and acute thinker he was. Hellenbach advocated the form of spiritualism that Kardec founded, spiritualism in scientific form. Also, those who, unlike Hellenbach or Gladstone, Wallace or Crookes, who thought of the spirits of early Christendom in angel form, wished to speak not scientifically, but only of the human being incarnating again and again, and of the projection into our sphere of unknown beings, whose form Hellenbach leaves indeterminate. Such personalities also helped in establishing scientific spiritualism in Germany. But even those who wished to know nothing whatever of another world could no longer avoid admitting the facts as such. People like Helenbach and even Edward von Hartmann wished to know nothing of the theories of the spiritualists, but the facts could not be denied. They did not allow themselves to be disconcerted, either, during the period of unmasking. The most celebrated case was that of the medium Bastian by Crown Prince Rudolf and Archduke Johann of Austria, but the very mediums, who had convinced our scientific circles were unmasked. Anyone who has even a little insight into this realm knows how right Helenbach was when he said, quote, "No one will maintain that there are no wigs." Are we therefore to believe that there is no real hair because wigs have been detected? And for those working in the occult field, the statement is of value that it will be possible to prove with certainty that many a bank is a swindler's bank. Yes, but has not this bank previously done honorable business also? The mode of judging spiritualistic truths hides behind such comparisons. We have seen that the natural, scientific and materialistic habits of thought since the 18th century, we can designate 1716 as the year of spiritualism's birth, have completely adapted themselves to modern thinking, even to the naturalistic views. A new form was sought which would make it possible to approach the higher supersensible truths. And all those who faced these facts tried to comprehend them in their own way. The Christian faith found in them a confirmation of the ancient beliefs of the Church. Even some orthodox people engaged in spiritualism in order to find in it good proof for their cause. Others, again, from the point of view of material thinking, which judges everything only according to material conditions, benefited by it. Even those who were thorough scientific researchers like Solner, Weber, Fechner, and also some well-known mathematicians like Simony and so on, tried to approach the matter by passing over from three-dimensional to four-dimensional space the philosophical individualists who could not believe that there is individual development in the spiritual world just as in the physical world, were led by profound investigation to see that this human mode of existence, the material mode, seeing with physical eyes, hearing with physical ears, is only one among many possible modes of existence. The advocates of a supersensible spiritualism such as Hellenbach, likewise found their ideas confirmed in the spiritualistic facts. If you picture to yourself a man who understood how to submit to the peculiarities of each single medium, who knew how to accommodate himself to the most difficult conditions, so that it did one good to meet him, then Hellenbach was such a man. Even those who alluded only to a psychic force, which one does not and need not think very much about, even those advocates of a psychic force like Edward von Hartmann, or even individuals like Duprel, of whom I shall speak next time, all explained the facts in their own way. There were many theories. It was a time in which a lack of clarity reigned in all fields, a time in which the phenomena could no longer be denied. But human minds proved to be utterly incapable of doing justice to the supersensible world. At this time, also, the foundation was laid for a revival of the mystical way, a revival of the way that in earlier times had been followed in occult science and in the mysteries. But it was revived in such a manner that it was accessible to anyone who wished to enter it. In order to reopen an understanding of this way, Madame Blavatsky founded the Theosophical Society. This research into wisdom, as it was carried on in the Mysteries and among the Rosicrucians in the Middle Ages, has been brought to life again through the Theosophical Movement. The Theosophical Movement desires to disseminate what has been sought in more recent times upon other paths. It is founded upon the ancient movements, but it relies also upon the most modern research. Anyone who becomes intimately acquainted with the Theosophical movement will find that the way of Theosophy, or spiritual science, which leads to supersensible truths, is, on the one side, really spiritual, while, on the other side, it answers the questions, whence does one come? Whither is one going? What is one's destiny? We know that there had to be one mode of speech for the humanity of ancient times, another in the Middle Ages, and yet another for modern humanity. The facts of theosophy are very old, but if you seek by way of spiritual science or theosophy, you will be convinced that when theosophy is understood, embraced and mastered, It will afford satisfaction for every demand of the modern scientific method. Those who would give up any of the scientific truths for the sake of theosophy would be poor theosophists. We need knowledge of the definite, clear kind that true science offers, yes, but not a knowledge that is limited to physical things, that is limited to what takes place between birth and death. We also need knowledge and awareness of what lies beyond birth and death. Unless spiritual science has the authorization to furnish that knowledge, it cannot do it, especially in a materialistic age. It knows that finally all spiritual movements must come together in a great common aim, which spiritualists will find at last in spiritual science. Spiritual science seeks the spiritual paths, however, in other, more comprehensive ways. It knows that what is of a spiritual nature cannot be attained in the physical world, nor by functions of a merely physical nature, let us say by vision analogous to the physical. Spiritual science knows that there is a world into which one gets a glimpse only after going through a spiritual operation, similar to the operation upon a person born blind who is made to see. It knows that it is not in order for a modern person to say, quote, Show me the supersensible through the senses. Close quote. It knows that the reply is, quote, Human being, lift thyself to the higher spheres of the spiritual world by becoming more and more spiritual, so that the connection with the spiritual world will be comparable to the connection with the sense world through the physical eyes and ears. Close quote. Spiritual science or theosophy has the point of view that a believer of the Middle Ages, a profound mystic, Angelus Salesius, expressed when he said that the truly spiritual couldn't be sought in the same manner as the physical. In the seventeenth century he declared, significantly, that material arrangements or anything analogous to the material couldn't attain the spiritual. Therefore, he speaks the great leading truth, pointing the way to the supersensible. People wish to look at God with their eyes, in the same way they look at a cow and love it. They wish to look at God as if he were here or there. It is not so. God and I are one at the moment I know him. We shall not behold the spiritual world by means of contrivances that would represent the higher world as one that is called supersensible to be sure but is still like the sense world around us nor shall we behold it by means of rapping sounds or other material performances of a perceptible nature nor by means of such apparently supersensible contrivances as Angelus Silesius characterizes when he says, quote, Such people wish to see God just as they see a cow. Rather we shall see the spiritual through the development of spiritual eyes, just as nature has evolved for us the physical eyes, so that we may see the physical world. Nature has finished her work, And released us with outer senses through which the sense world is made perceptible to us. The path we must tread is to develop a perception of the spiritual order within the sense world, so as to be able to behold the spirit with eyes of spirit. We must tread this spiritual path independently and in harmony with modern evolution. The end of Lecture 3.